I did something really stupid. I stole something. Ugh. Now I'm a thief. And I got my new friends in jail because of, of it. My world was shrinking fast. Right then a cop walked in with a handcuffed dude in green Levi's, cowboy boots, and real short hair, a regular redneck. I was thinking, as the cop took off his handcuffs and pushed him through the door and into the cell, he looked at John and I and nodded. I had long hair then, and the redneck dudes in Colorado and all over the West back then didn't like that. I suppose it was a symbol of the downfall of something that they were afraid of that made them so angry when they saw long hair. Once while hitchhiking on the freeway outside Colorado Springs, two cowboy rednecks tried to run me over in a pickup truck. I had to dive in the bushes for safety. They had short hair just like our new cellmate. What you in for, he said with a gruff voice. Robbery, I said, feeling somewhat bigger now. I figured he wouldn't beat me up. He might think I was all right since I had the nerve to do that. Wow, he said. And by the look in his eyes, I suddenly saw the reflection of a different man than the one I originally saw walk through the door. He was scared. I could see that now. What you in for, I asked. John looked up for a first time since he came in and waited for the answer. Selling acid. Right then a cop came through the door again. This time he motioned us to come forward. I turned to look at John, but he was gone. His body sat motionless. I was used to seeing John like that. He could rarely cope with people. His body was generally the only form of his presence. His mind was too great. He knew it, and I knew it, but neither of us knew how to use it. A few of his teachers and professors back at school knew it too. He was an A student, but they didn't know why he acted so strangely. I did. John was a very depressed boy. The more depressed he got, the more acid he took. The reality often lost any meaning to John. Tripping on acid or not, John was very lost. I was one of his few friends, but even I couldn't find him most of the time. A few of the more concerned faculty at school used to come to me for advice on how to get him out of the moods, but I could never help. I left him in the cell and was escorted out by the cop. That was the last time I saw John ever sitting motionless next to the acid dealer. I found out a few years later that John hung himself at his parents' house, home in Nebraska. The cell door closed behind me, Clank, footsteps, footsteps, footsteps. Hollow, hollow, hollow. My world was so small. One second, two seconds, three seconds. My world was nothing. I was questioned by the police for a while. Even Phil and I were sent to juvenile jail jailhouse outside Colorado Springs. We were stripped and showered and issued work clothes and shoes. Later, I was taken to a cell on my own. My newly acquainted pants and shoes had to be left outside by the door. When the cell door closed behind me, I was alone. I heard footsteps and voices. I felt ridiculous in my underpants. I cried. I cursed myself for what I had done. But it was too late. The 
cell I was in, the small barred window toilet and no lid, a sink, a bed with no pillow, and one, one blanket and one sheet. The lights went out at 10 o'clock, and it was 9, and I really wanted to go to sleep. It was the only escape I could acquire. I had no control over the lights. It was much too bright in my little cell to sleep. I became very frustrated. I started doing exercises to make myself tired. And then I meditated quietly. After about an hour, I heard good night from the end of the hall, and the lights suddenly went out. It was dark, and I crawled into bed. A short time went by, and I started hearing voices. Hey, Billy, said a young-sounding voice. You awake? Yep, said Billy. I began to realize these were young kids talking. I must have been the oldest kid in the jail. I was 17. Hey, Billy, you going to court tomorrow? Yeah, said Billy. You going to get any cigarettes? Asked the little voice in the dark. Hey, Billy, said a third voice, even younger sounding, maybe 12 years old. What, said Billy? Your face is ugly. I heard little chuckles, little munchkins echoing the hall. The lights came on, and the guard yelled, quiet in there. The lights went out. It was quiet for about two minutes, and the, the chatter started again. Hey, Tommy, what are you doing? Writing a letter, said Tommy. In the dark, asked the voice. Chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Could be heard from about eight or ten voices of little boys. Yeah, in the dark, I could see like a cat. The clatter went on into the night, and I fell asleep. Next morning, I was wakened at 6.30. I got to see the whole layout of the jail, and Phil also. Good morning, he said, with that easy-going smile. There was a main room where everyone was assembled. I couldn't believe it. There was about eight or ten boys and about 20 or 30 girls, all juveniles and from 11 years old to 17. I found out the girl cells were real crowded anywhere from two to five girls in a cell. All the boys had individual cells. The boys and girls were all pretty tough, and some of the girls were pretty huge. Who knew what they were in for? I asked the 12-year-old boy what he was in for. He said, armed robbery. I couldn't believe it. There was a little boy who looked like a youngest, maybe 10 or 11 years old. I asked, what are you in for, Muggsy? Trying to be funny. My mother sent me here when she found out I stole a candy bar from the stupid store in Manitou. She thought I'd be scared, to, too scared to ever steal again if I came here, but I like it here. All my friends are here. I was floored. He was dead serious and very sad because he was getting out in a couple of days. And I couldn't imagine what his home life was like. He would steal again as soon as he got out so he would come back. We were all assembled in line by a couple of plainclothes guards. When we got, went through the breakfast line, there were there were eggs, corned beef, toast, and jelly. I just had toast and a bowl of dried cereal. I looked around while I was eating. There was quite a few strange-looking kids, some of whom I couldn't tell if they were retarded or heavily affected. The girls especially were real strange and in their own world. They wouldn't talk to the boys at all. After we ate breakfast, we were divided into groups and sent into different rooms. We were all handed books by a young man about 25, 
and told to open to a certain page. It was a book on mathematics, and it was a boring class. Everyone else thought so, too. We had one more class, and then the boys filed into the gym, and we played basketball. I saw Phil again there. We were much bigger than the, any of the other boys, and we took it real easy playing ball. Suddenly a guard came in and told us to come with him. We were getting out. I was glad when I saw the headmaster's face. Mr. Perry was the man in charge of the whole school. His main involvement with the students was in the mainly public relations level. He was the one who had to protect the image of the school to the police and the public. It must have been a tough job since there were 250 other students in the school of which at least half were as crazy as, as and lost as Phil and John and I. I think Mr. Perry, or at least FES, was a well-known as a very respectable school for college preparatory students from the 30s. When it started all the way until the mid-50s, with the nature of the student body and the youth in the age 14 or 18, for that matter, began to change. After that, the late 50s were the beat era, and the 60s with the hip era brought a rather unique breed of young students, almost all from high-income families and even high intelligence, but most of whom could not place in any of the top Ivy League or truly recognized colleges. Most of the students were drug users, and a lot of the students got in trouble with the local police, sometimes the federals. Mr. Perry had experienced bailing out rich little brats like me out of jail. Fountain Valley was a good school. The student body was from another planet. There was ex exceptions, of course, but obviously I wasn't one of them. We were issued our clothes back. Phil and I felt real nervous about facing Mr. Perry. I felt ashamed when we were ready. We were ushered into the library where Mr. Perry was waiting. He had the public relations smile on his face. As always, I was really glad to see it. On the ride back to school, Mr. Perry was extremely kind and disarming when he explained we were expelled from school. He was actually apologetic as he explained that it had been already been exposed to the newspapers that three FES boys had been busted the only way he could. Expulsion of the hazardous element. Me. Please remember now, FES is a high-class prep school, not a reform school. I was part of the downfall of the school's image. I did feel horrible about it. And I would still, if I hadn't been for the realization that I was part of the confused breed. There were quite a few others like me, not of all of which were caught stealing, but all of which were suffering wounds from the last American bullets. The bullets that no longer had a target to hit, except the new breed of confused hybrid Americans like me, victim of my desires and the dreams that you could have anything you wanted in the U.S. of A. Our parents didn't know what to do with us. Our teachers didn't know, and we all had such freedom to decide for ourselves. We were all getting our directions in life from anti-establishment paths. I guess youth is a class of its own, but we thought we were our own society. We were. Over the next few days, while preparations were made for my return east, you know he was 
not the type who would handle life, let alone in prison. Finally, I, all my belongings were packed and ready to be shipped back to the parents' house. Hiding and gave it to Mr. Perry to return to the police who were still looking for a non-existent fourth thief. The last day before I left was the worst. The only visitors I had were my teachers. One by one, they came in to say goodbye. First the dean, Gary, just keep in touch, okay? He knew better than to try and lecture me. He respected me, and I knew I was feeling bad enough. Then Mr. Barley, my drum master, Gary, I don't understand. I could see the tears in his eyes. I couldn't believe it. He really trusted me. I guess I really let him down. How could you risk your future for such a materialistic gain? I felt so sad. was disappointed. You were my favorite student. You let me down. Mr. Byerly, I said, I let no one down worse than myself. With that, I cried in front of him. Gary, if you ever get the chance, please write or visit. My wife and I will always welcome you. He turned and left. Then Mr. Severance came in. He was the school disciplinarian. I hated and feared him. Remember, Gary, you're getting off easy. I don't want to see you on this campus for at least a year from this date. He was probably afraid I would come back and sell drugs or blow up the school or something. He turned and left me cold. I wish I had said, shove it, to his face. It was a brisk Colorado morning with the wide blue sky and t tumbleweeds blowing across the plains as Phil and I sped in our taxi toward the airport. I looked off the valleys to my right and saw a jet plane over toward the airstrip over the heads of the spotted heifers and rolling Colorado hills. I wondered if I could ever see them again. My favorite part about school was being able to ride over those hills on my horse. After class let out every day, I would run down to the stables, jump on my palomino, and ride, ride, ride onto the plains. Free my mind. I was considered one of the more experienced riders on campus. I was given free reign over the 3,000 acres of school property that stretched as far as the eye could see. Many times I would ride with my friends out to the commercial beehives that were fenced off out of view behind one of the hills a half mile off campus. We'll tie our horse to a tree a few hundred yards away from the beehives, and if there was no one in sight and it was cold enough to keep the bees from waking up, we began with petrified grins on our faces. And with no hesitation, we would dart over the fence, lift them to the top of one of the wooden shelf-like hives, and pull out a rack of honeycombs, one and one half inches thick, wild, solid honey, encased in beeswax. Then we would run back to the horse, jump on like Roy Rogers, gallop off over the hills to safety. When we felt we were safely out of the view, we'd stop, light a joint, smoke it, and pass it, gobs of honey in wax back and forth. 
We usually return to the stables sick in our stomachs from the excesses, but we loved it. Right now, the campus was behind me, and Phil made some comment about how it seemed shame to leave on such a nice day. I could hardly muster a word. I knew I was leaving behind something that I would miss. I looked towards the Cheyenne Mountains and the Pikes Peak. I wished I was camping in them along some isolated path, safe from the disappointed faces of my mother and father. I knew I would see these faces, and I dreaded the, the moment. As the taxi pulled into, into the airport, Phil mentioned to me that his father was going to meet us at the airport and fly back with us as far as Chicago, then leave me to fly alone to New York. Oh, shit, I remembered. He's going to give me our first big lecture, isn't he? I got nervous. He'll probably murder us. Nah, said Phil. He looked away out the window. He unloaded our luggage from the taxi and went inside the small Colorado Springs terminal. There was Phil's father waiting. Phil greeted his dad with a smile and a shrug. Mr. Edwards was a tall man and greeted Phil and I awkwardly. I didn't think he knew whether he was angry enough to yell or sad enough to cry. He just said hello to me with an awkward smile and offered to carry some of our smaller bags. I gave him a shoulder bag and tennis racket. Phil gave him his camera, fishing pole, and shoulder bag. Mr. Edwards took it all with his awkward smile, still frozen on his face. Let's go, boys. He turned and started walking down the long corridor of the small airport terminal building. Phil looked at me and kind of smiled and shrugged again. I couldn't believe how easy Phil's first encounter with his father was. I knew mine wouldn't be as easy. My old man is pretty mellow, believe it? Phil whispered. Phew, I hissed. You said it. We began dragging and pushing our suitcases and duffel bags down the corridor. Mr. Edwards marched ahead with that awkward look on his face, carrying the tennis racket, fishing pole, and camera, and two shoulder bags. He looked depressed like a Florida tourist who left straight from the office on a vacation he knew he couldn't afford, with two nitwit bellhops pushing in and grunting, luggage behind him. It seemed like everyone in the airport stared at us as we paraded past all the ticket counters. Finally, we arrived at the American Airlines counter and picked up our tickets. Mine was paid for by already by my father in New York. He was probably waiting for me with gritted teeth and lowered brow. We checked our baggage and made our way to the gate. Mr. Edwards smiled faintly and said, Your mother will be glad to see you, Phil. It's good to see you, Dad, Phil said proddingly as he looked at me with a grin. Good to see you too, Phil, Mr. Edwards replied. Minutes later, we were flying in the air. Mr. Edwards hardly said a word. The whole trip to Chicago, I looked out the window over the mountains of Colorado, the plains of Nebraska, and the rivers of Missouri, and suddenly we dropped down onto the Windy City, like being dropped down a little 
slide into a swimming pool. I felt the hairs in the back of my neck as we swooped to a landing in O'Hare Airport. When the jet wheels hit the runway, I jumped, but didn't move because of the seatbelt holding me down. My heart was in my throat as we landed in the terminal building. I couldn't believe we landed so fast. I looked at Phil as his face was flushed, and he was suppressing one of his laugh attacks. He seemed to enjoy the roller coaster effect. Phil seemed to enjoy anything wild. It was scared. I was scared stiff. Mr. Edwards still had that awkward smile frozen on his face as he got off the air to depart. The stewardesses asked everyone to be remain seated until the plane came to a complete stop. Phil got up and shook my hand goodbye and walked out ahead with his father. See you around, Gary, he barked. See you, Phil, I said. Mr. Edwards extended his hand, and I shook it. His hand felt stronger than before. I looked up at his face, and his awkward smile was gone. He stared at me wisely for an eternally affectionate second and said, Gary, good luck in your life your future. I think you and Phil have proved, probably learned a lot from this. Thank Mr. Edwards, I think. He didn't say stay to listen. He dropped my hand and was gone. The plane sat at O'Hare for 45 grueling minutes. The sun went down, the stewardesses changed duty, and the pilots walked back and forth on the plane. A mechanic and some authorized personnel were scrambling around outside the plane. I could barely see them in the dark. They were banging on the bottom of the left wing right outside of my window. I couldn't believe it. Why bang? I said to myself. I strained to see what was going on in the dark. Suddenly saw a man standing on the wing (laughs) and another on the ladder giving commands and hand signals. The man on the wing unscrewed a small plate off the top of the wing and reached his hand in and was turning something. I motioned to the stewardess who was nearby helping passengers get comfortable for the trip to New York. Excuse me, miss, I cleared my throat. Can I help you, she smiled. Yes, what are they doing out there? She turned, leaned over to look out the window and the man who was now replacing the plate on the wing. Routine check, I suppose. I'll ask the captain if you want. I couldn't believe it. I was trying hard to smile. You mean you really don't know? I mean, could it be something serious? No, 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 she laughed. Don't worry, we've flown a few times, you know. Maybe it's time we try a different jet. I said, only half joking. I'll be right back, she said. I watched her head for the front of the cabin. She came back in a minute with the news that they were just making some tension adjustments on the wing, which was deemed necessary for the routine check. Nothing to fear, she said. All set, I said. The last passenger was seated and the jet plane pulled away from the terminal. We are now ready for takeoff. I heard the stewardess over the loudspeaker. 
Please fasten your seatbelt and bring your seatbacks to full upright position. Click, click, click with the seatbelts. We will arrive in New York Kennedy Airport in approximately two hours and 20 minutes. Thank you for flying American. I began to drift off. I hated flying. The jet seemed to wobble to the runway. The pilot's voice came over. The speaker introduced himself and spoke for a while. I looked out the window as the jet lifted off the runway. The lights of the airport grew smaller and smaller. The jet angled and turned like a giant bird. My ears popped and my heart pounded and my hands gripped the armrest of the seat. I looked around at all the passengers on the jet. Oh, how I regretted ever getting on the plane. I was feeling helpless and trapped. The other passengers looked calm enough and made me even more nervous. I hated flying. I always thought I was going to crash at any second. I had the certain ritual that involved a thought process only an imagination like mine could muster. To keep the plane from crashing and no one dying, I had to look around at all the passengers and determine personality traits. Then I had to project how the expressions of the excitement and the joy of the beginning of the journey would turn to horror and flight as we all first realized the jet was going to crash. After that was safely imagined, I had to muster up the spit in my stomach, um, a simulated dive-bombing roller coaster effect that left my spinal cord tingling, my own miniature plane crash feeling. It was my own foolproof method that kept plane crashes from actually happening. Whenever I flew, oh, yes, I also would pray to God and give up something if he wouldn't kill me like smoking or stealing or sex or anything that seemed appropriate. So the plane rose into the air. I went through my ritual. The seatbelt sign went off. Click, click, click. Went all the seatbelts. I looked at a couple across from me who I noticed hadn't unfastened their seatbelts. They were staring at the pages of their paperback novels trying to disappear from the here and now, and I wondered if they knew something I didn't. I imagined their paperbacks half burned and being discovered. hundred yards from the burning rubble of the Boeing 707 the following morning, I looked forward and saw a fat woman standing up and making her way to the bathroom on the back of the plane. She talked very loudly in her tons of jewelry, and the makeup seemed to rattle and shake as she walked by. I imagined her screaming and knocking other passengers flat as she was tossed about by the jet that suddenly went nosediving toward the ground three miles below. I looked at the businessman I could, that I could see through the crack through the seats and in the front of me. He had figures in his head and a sense of accomplishment in his hairstyle. Just like my father in so many of his business trips. Alone is still working overtime. I could see the look of I knew it come over his face as his briefcase flew into the air and his life flashed before him for the last time as the plane spun in circles plummeting to its end. There seemed to be a glow in the cabin as my imagination continued to wander in my safety ritual. 
It seemed like I was suddenly in one of Rod Sterling's twilight zones. I tried to look out my window, but the reflection of my own face was all I could see. My hair was long, and my pinstripe suit was a little too large in the shoulders. My face was sorrowful, and my eyes were as sensitive and revealing as a lost animal. I stared at myself long and hard, and I wondered who I was. A 17-year-old boy being thrown out of one of the most expensive prep schools in the country for stealing, going home to face his father and mother, who had taught him that stealing was wrong. They had taught him that lying was wrong. Yet he saw so many facts and lies in the world in which he lived. The upper-middle-class childhood was being uprooted and examined by that moment. Why was it that being an American boy on a Pennsylvania farm with a successful businessman as a father and a lovely housewife for a mother was always considered healthy and wholesome and superior. The Russians couldn't have that. The Germans couldn't have that. China childhood didn't have that. Or either. As an American boy, I thought I was stronger than any other type boy. I was a victim of my own upbringing. I was caught in an illusion only Americans retained. I was raised to feel I had the ability to be the strongest entity in the universe. John Glenn felt it. John Kennedy felt it. Abe Lincoln felt it. What the hell was Abby Hoffman thinking? What was Bob Dylan thinking? What was Allen Ginsberg and James Dean thinking? What was I thinking? What I was thinking? Was I thinking the same thing they were? All my peers were testing the balance that held the American ethic and we were finding the, the lies and falsehoods in our parents' worlds. When I finally learned that George Washington died of VD, I knew my father was living some kind of lie and I, I knew it. I was too. John Wayne was a victim of the American dream. To be superior might makes right and the girl makes a family and to carry a gun and kill your enemy. Well, someone had shot me through the soul with the last American bullet. I was finished. I was part of the nomadic race. As I looked out the window of the jet, my face began to disappear, and I noticed the flickering below on and off sporadically. I wondered if it was some kind of lonesome American household in the night, signaling to someone for help in Morse code. Help! Help me change! <laughs> Help me find something. Help me find something real. Suddenly, I realized the flickering light was following the plane. It wasn't on the ground at all. I strained to look and see. The light grew suddenly brighter, and I gasped to see it was, wasn't following the plane. It was on the plane, right on the wing. It appeared to me that the plate, that the ground crew had unscrewed and loosened as the one side revealed a small light right inside the wing itself. I was petrified, and for one of the few times in my life, really, really, truly awake. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. I stood up, sat down, stood up, sat down again. The seat began beside me was empty. No one saw what I saw. It seemed like I could see right through the wing, and it seemed like the wing was flopping unusually against the air pressure. I was about to grab the stewardess's attention, but it was too late. The jet began to bounce like a small boat on ocean waves, 
Bam, bam, bam. Everyone in the jet was suddenly aware of the bumpy ride. The seatbelt sign went on. The stewardesses ran down the aisles, making everyone sit down and fasten the seatbelts. Overhead compartments began opening by themselves, and pillows and coats fell onto the aisles and on people's heads. Some women in the front of the plane began talking hysterically. I heard a stewardess say unconvincingly, It's all right. Just sit down. My overhead compartment suddenly opened and after a terrifying bump and out fell my tennis racket, which hit me square in the head. I let out a yell and almost blanked out. The pain was unbelievable and I felt like a jerk for putting it up there. The jet suddenly angled and bounced. Some people began screaming. I noticed a couple reading the paperback books hadn't even looked up. I wondered if they were real. The fat lady who had walked back to the bathroom came crashing through the bathroom door with her spandex pants still around her ankles. The businessman's briefcase and papers were all over the floor, and the stewardess had been flung across his lap. He threw his arms over her legs and back and started crying. He mocked a joke and kiddingly hugged her waist. The jet jet dropped again, and the bumps were so fast and hard that I could feel the skin shaking on my face. It was unbearable. The pressure in my ears was greater than I ever felt I could take. It seemed like the plane was nose-driving for the ground. People were screaming and crying, and suddenly I remembered I had finished my safety ritual. I had forgotten to pray and promised I would give something up. I yelled out loud, God, I'll give up anything Please, God, I promise. I'll give up being the confused American. I'll be a good, God-fearing family man. I promise I won't be a a rebel. I swear. Suddenly, the plane leveled off, and like the prayers had been heard, the ride became smooth, and everyone calmed down a little. The pilot's voice came over the loudspeaker and said, Ladies and gentlemen, we are sorry about the bit of rough flight there, but we have it under control now. Thank you for your cooperation. We'll be making a smooth landing in New York in about 25 minutes. On behalf of American Airlines, we apologize. And as promised, we made a good smooth landing at Kennedy, and no one felt very forgiving. <laughs>